All right, guys, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, we'll leave the uh, the we'll leave the deal's address up on the screen for the next few minutes if you guys want to take a picture or 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 write it down on your phones or whatever. That'd be great. Okay, wonderful. <clears throat> um, so we are about. I think this is the fourth week in our series that we've been going through called Grace Alone. Okay, and just to kind of bring you up to speed. Uh, we're going through this series through the book of Galatians because the book of Galatians is hardcore about the gospel. It's like unapologetically Paul just throwing roundhouses in the chin of people like gospel, 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 gospel because we're forgetful people. I heard uh, a pastor one time talk about the gospel like we have gospel amnesia. Like yeah, we might believe in facts but we forget it. We forget it and it has this like there's this blockage from information from our head to our heart that actually informs our behavior. So we wanted to say, hey, we're planning this church, okay? We're like in the, this baby is like barely born, okay? And in this season of our church, we want the gospel to be the most important thing, the most, the, the central thing. We want to have a church, a family of God centered on the gospel. We never add to it because when we add to the gospel, essentially what we're doing is we're moving on from it. So hopefully you have your Bible, grab your Bible. If you do, turn to Galatians chapter three. I cannot encourage you enough to bring an actual like uh, printed Bible. I know I keep my phone on me too and have the app and it's helpful, but cannot encourage you enough to bring a printed Bible. I'm usually in the ESV. Um, if for whatever reason you don't have one, I would love to give you one. Come talk to me. That'd be a pleasure. Um, so tonight, uh, before I jump into the scriptures, how many of you guys have seen that movie? I think it's still in theaters. It's called The Darkest Hour. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, cool, I'm gonna spoil it for every single one of you right now. It, basically, you can't spoil it because it's, uh, it's about Winston Churchill. It's basically, uh, it tells the story of right when he becomes the prime minister of the United Kingdom and right as like the Nazis are kind of going wild in Europe, okay? So Hitler's like invading Poland and France and then, uh, I forget the guy's name, but he's the prime minister before Winston Churchill. He like gets kicked out, booted out, he resigns and then Winston Churchill becomes the prime minister of the UK and it's interesting because you have, he, he inherits this office, he becomes the prime minister and they're in the middle of World War II and if you know anything about World War II, it's one of the most crazy, gnarly times I believe in like in world history. It's, it, it's ridiculous, right? And he has this, he has this, what he calls his war cabinet, okay? So he has this group of politicians with him and they're there to counsel him and give him information and help him make decisions as the prime minister when it comes to the war, okay? So this war cabinet, they're counseling him. They're saying, hey, at this point with where the war is, we just need to kind of like negotiate a surrender with Germany, like we need to, they call it peace talks, which if, when you're familiar with, peace talks is not like peace, it's like, hey, don't destroy all of our entire country, like we'll surrender, right? So Churchill has his war cabinet and they're giving him this counsel, hey, at this point of the war, the best move is to just negotiate surrender to Germany, to the Nazis. And he's kind of getting to the point now where he's like, okay, he's starting to kind of get persuaded by their counsel to surrender, and then there's this epic scene in the movie, and like I said, I'm not spoiling anything for you, this is history. And <clears throat> there's this epic scene in the movie where he, he's like the prime minister, and he gets on the subway. So imagine if like the president were to ride like the DC metro, it'd be like crazy, it just would never happen. So the prime minister gets, Winston Churchill gets on the subway, and when he's in there, everybody, you can imagine it, all the, all the quote normal people are there, and they're, they look at him and they're like, they double take and they're like, that's, Winston, that's our prime minister, that's Winston Churchill. And while he's in the car with them, he, um, he basically asks them like, hey, what do you guys think about the war? Like, what's, what's your opinion, you know? And they kind of give their opinion and he goes, what would you think if we kind of like minimized the casualties and just kind of surrendered to Germany? And they were like, no, like never surrender. That would, no, you know, and this little girl even is like, no, like we would never surrender, you know, like we'd fight in the streets and stuff if we had to, like this is our, this is our country, like we, we want to promote freedom and there's all these different things, right? And he comes away from that encounter in that subway car 
and he delivers this like super inspiring f- speech in parliament. I'm gonna read you just a portion of it. Like if you can imagine, it's this you know older, like bigger white Englishman guy and he's like delivers this. You've probably heard this before, but he goes, this is just a portion of the speech that was like, I'm watching this movie and I'm like, yeah. <clears throat> and he says, uh, sorry, my history nerd is coming in right now. He says, even the large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail a flag. He's talking like surrendering. We shall go on till the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And I'm not delivering it near as eloquently as he did, near as passionately as he did, but there's this idea of like, we will not surrender. We're gonna fight no matter what the cost. No matter where we are, we're gonna defend ourselves. But in the midst of that, like, that season of his leadership, he was faced with these opposing messages. <clears throat> okay, you have the politicians on one side that are saying the best move is to surrender. The best way forward is to give in to the enemy, just surrender. And then you have the people, the British people on the other hand, that are saying, let's fight to the death here. Don't ever surrender. And how Churchill responded to each of those messages was like a major turning point in World War II, okay? In fact, it was a major turning point in world history. If Britain had surrendered, like there's a good chance you and I would be speaking German. Like this white guy would not have been able to, it would probably be illegal for me to marry my Latino wife. Like there's all these implications you can go down the rabbit trail of what would have happened had Churchill like given in to the other message that he was receiving. The reality of that picture for me that just kind of stuck out to me was every single day, like you and I were bombarded with opposing messages, with all these different messages. Like the one that gets to me oftentimes is you just see this prevailing message in our culture to follow your heart. Hitler followed his heart. Like nasty, terrible, evil things happen when we follow our broken, sinful hearts, okay? Do what makes you happy. Again, I'm sure they were thrilled to invade countries and take their land and genocide of Jews and all the atrocities of World War II. Think about every single commercial you've ever seen in your entire life. Like think about, have you guys seen the Axe commercials? They're absolutely ridiculous. It's like some grody look, disgusting guy and he sprays himself and then every beautiful woman in the surrounding areas is like, oh my goodness. And it just conditions men that like you kind of, you need to have Axe body spray if you want the attention of the ladies. And just think about, like I said, any, any commercial you've ever seen, it communicates to you that your life is incomplete without whatever it is they want, your money, like whatever they're selling. I don't know if you guys know this, but seriously, your life is pointless without the new iPhone. Or at least they want us to believe that. What about messages that maybe are a little bit darker than that? The, the messages that we receive in our hearts and in our minds, like you're not as good of a parent as you should be. You're not as good of enough a parent as him or her. So why do you even bother? Or even darker still, no one would really miss you if you're gone. If you weren't here, it wouldn't matter that much. Things would be better if you just ended it. Now listen to me very carefully. All of those messages I just shared with you are completely bogus. All of those messages are in opposition, though, to the one true message, and that is the gospel of Jesus. And in today's passage that we're gonna go through, the Apostle Paul, he has this warning to Christians that your response to the messages you hear have huge consequences in your life, like massive. Okay, so go ahead and 
look at Galatians chapter 3. Hopefully you found it by now. I'm going to pray for our time together before I read the scriptures. Um, I would love to get in the habit, guys. I, lo- I love to pray before we jump into the word every week, but I would love to get in the habit of, I'm gonna ask God to like bless our time and speak to us. Will you ask God to bless, like honestly to bless me, to like help me in these moments? I really wanna honor you. I really wanna serve you. And I, like, I just feel the weight of like preaching the word of God. Like this is not my gig, this is his gig. I just wanna be a vessel for him. So will you pray with me? Oh, Father, I know that you love us. I know that you love me, and that is like such a comforting thing. Oh, I pray, Spirit, that you would encourage us tonight. Thank you that we actually have like the Bible. We have this collection of you revealing yourself to your people written down for us. I love the truths of the scriptures. I love the promises of the scriptures. And I pray God, that um, you would use me to, to love, to serve my brothers and my sisters in this room. I don't want anything that I say to you to get in the way of your agenda, and I believe it. I believe your agenda is, every single time we do this, I believe that your agenda is to glorify yourself and to encourage each of us with the reality of your radical love and grace. So help us to see you clearly, God, and help me to um, faithfully serve. I love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, Galatians chapter three, starting in verse one. This is Paul getting a little little gnarly again. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Strong language. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Really quick, that's a rhetorical question, okay? We receive the Spirit by hearing the gospel with faith, right? It's not, it's by grace alone, not works. Verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's basically saying, do you really think that your sinful flesh can complete the work that God has started? It's like a ridiculous idea. Verse four, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Verse seven, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews, he would justify them by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Continue on, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things written in the book of the law and do them. He's basically saying, if you're relying, it's this idea that we've heard a bunch of times. If you're relying on your performance in obeying the law, you're in big trouble, okay? Because we all fail at obeying the law perfectly. Let's keep reading, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He's referencing the cross. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's keep going. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural there, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, he's basically saying that God didn't change his mind. Okay, it's always been faith that reconciles a person to God. Okay, let's keep going. I'm almost done here. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 20, now an intermediary, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Okay, I know that's a lot. I wanna focus in on three things tonight, okay? We're gonna spend the bulk of our time in these three areas. One, the miraculous intervention. Okay, the second, the role of biology. And the third, the unchanging gospel. Okay, so miraculous intervention. Look back at verse five with me. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, let's talk about miracles for a second. Are you guys familiar with a miracle? Raise your hand if you've ever seen a miracle in your life. Okay, handful of us, great. <clears throat> a miracle, just simply put, is something you can't naturally do on your own. Okay? A miracle is something you can't naturally do on your own. It's, it's not natural, it's super natural, okay? <clears throat> so I wanna, I wanna share a couple uh, stories with you. The first uh, was the first time I ever, uh, the first time I was in Africa, okay? So I'm in Africa, they pick me up at the airport, there's a group of us, and they're driving us like four hours in the middle of the night to like the bush, the wilderness, okay? We're going out to the middle of nowhere in what's called the Mui River in South Africa. So we get there, we crash for the night, and then we wake up and we go and we visit this run down, really young church. Um, this missionary and his family, this guy from, uh, I wanna say he was from Britain, uh, he leads this church and it's, here's what's crazy, it's all young kids. It's all like young kids and women. There's, there's no man, there's like three men in the back of the room and I was like, oh, are those some of the men in the church? He goes, no, those are just like the taxi drivers that drive some of them into, from way out of town into here to kind of join for the gathering. So there's no men. So we minister, and uh, at the end of the gathering, uh, we, I offered to pray for people. So I'm standing at the, kind of the front, and this older woman comes to me. She, she has this young boy with her. I mean, I'm talking like three or four years old. Young boy. She brings him with him, or she brings him to me with her, and I'm assuming it's, it's her grandmother, because she had affection for him, and she was much, much older. And so she brings him to me, and I have a translator because everybody there speaks Zulu. So even when you're preaching there, it's like you say a line and you wait for the translator and you say a line and you wait for the translator. So it's an interesting dynamic to minister uh, like cross languages, you know? And so I'm there and I go, okay, how can I pray for you? And the translator's talking to her. And the grandmother says, um, my boy um, it, it got really badly burned. Okay, and I had noticed, I'd seen him earlier, and when he, when he came up with her, he has this huge bandage on his leg, and he's kind of like, he walks up and he's limping. <clears throat> so he goes, hey, will you pray for God to heal my boy? And it was crazy, guys. Like, in that moment, I was, I had, I feel like God just gave me so much faith for this little boy. So I tell the translator, I would never normally do this, but I, I it was crazy. I feel like God hijacked me. Uh, I would never normally do this, but... I tell the translator, I said, hey, tell the grandmother that um, when Jesus heals this boy, you have to, when he grows up, you have to tell him that Jesus healed him. And I was like, if you agree to do that, I would love to pray for him. So he tells her and she kind of looks at, looks at me like, okay, like, yeah, like I'll agree to tell him that Jesus healed him if he gets healed when he grows up. So I lay hands on the kid, I pray for him, ask God to heal him, nothing special, like I'm not, 
the world's leading expert on the right thing to say at the right time. Many of you know that. And uh, so I pray for this boy, say amen. The boy looks up at me, looks at his grandmother, and takes off running outside to go play with the other kids who are playing soccer. In the moment, I was like, they're, they're messing with me. This is not real. Like, they, they're, they're hustling me right now. This is crazy. So a couple days go by, and uh, through another pastor that I'm in relationship with who's in relationship with the, the guy who leads that, that, that church in Mui River, he goes, hey, dude, that boy really did get healed in that moment. So I share that story with you to go, to tell you, like, that's an example of a miracle. Like, that's supernatural. I couldn't naturally do any of that on my own. That was God intervening. Why? Because he loves that little boy and he wanted to communicate the love of Jesus to that boy by healing him supernaturally, okay? I have one more cool story for you. I'm literally, I'm preparing this message this week. I'm sitting in front of my computer and I get a text message from one of the leaders in, in Restored South Bay. And he goes, hey dude, can I FaceTime with you really quick? I'm sitting in front of my computer, so I'm like, yeah, like, that's fine. So he FaceTimes with me, and he pops up on the screen, and he goes, hey man, like about a year ago, maybe a little bit longer, um, uh, you met somebody, and like God used, used you in a crazy way in his life, and, and, he, and he pans the phone over, and I recognize the guy's face. And it was this guy, David. Um, some of you guys will remember David. David was the custodian at the elementary school that Restored South Bay gathers in right now. Okay, so if, if you guys are familiar with anything with schools, like custodians, they run the show. So if you get in good with the custodian, you're fine. Like even more so than the principal, like if you can become friends with the custodian, he hooks you up, he takes care of you. And David was really, really, he's a kind guy. But as we were visiting different elementary schools trying to find a place to gather for that church plant in that season of, of, their, um, of their planting story, uh, we visited, it's called Rosebank, we visited Rosebank and we started to kind of develop a relationship with David. Before we'd even gathered there, we were just checking out the space. Um, David kind of shared like, oh yeah, you know, you guys will probably be dealing with somebody else for the next couple months because I need to go in, I'm going in for surgery tomorrow for a hernia. And I could tell, I could tell he was kind of like, you could tell he was in pain and kind of wincing as he was walking around and stuff. So again, just kind of feeling like, hey dude, can we, there was me and a couple of people on my team, I was like, hey, can we, um, can we just pray for you? Would you, be okay? Would you be comfortable with that? Like, just ask God to heal you and maybe you don't even need to go in for surgery. And he's like, he, I could tell he was kind of freaked out, but he was like, yeah, sure. So we pray for him, ask God to heal him and don't think anything of it and, you know, whatever. It, nothing really happened. Fast forward to this FaceTime call and he goes, hey, dude, I'm really sorry. Um, I should have told you this a long time ago, but I was kind of afraid to. I was kind of afraid to admit that it actually happened. He goes, the next day I went in for surgery, they cut me open, and there was nothing there. He goes, you didn't have a hernia. He goes, they literally, he goes, I have a scar on my belly from where they cut me open for no reason because there was no hernia. And he said when he woke up, his wife was super angry because she's like, why did you cut him open? Why are we paying this money? Why, why are we here if there's no hernia, right? And the nurse is like, there's nothing there. Like, there's nothing we can do. I'm sorry, you don't have a hernia. Since then, the guy's become a Christian. Like, he genuinely gave his life to Jesus. He's following Jesus. Jesus is Lord and his Savior. It's another example of miraculous intervention. Not for the sake of just, like, you know, cool things happening, but for the sake of God um, revealing his love and his care for an individual. Supernatural. You couldn't naturally do it on your own. Look back at verse five again. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles, these supernatural interventions among you, by, uh, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now listen, verse five tells us there's a connection between faith in God and miracles, okay? Have you ever heard the phrase signs and wonders? Okay, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've heard this phrase signs and wonders. What is a sign? This is the participation part. What is a sign? What does a sign do? It points. A sign literally points to something, okay? So when we talk about signs and wonders, the miraculous signs and wonders that we see happening when people hear the gospel and respond in faith, we're talking about things that would super, supernatural occurrences of God intervening, right, that point to what? That point to himself, He's, that's what a sign and a, one, a sign is. It's something that points to something else. 
That's what miracles are. They're signs and wonders. The wonder piece is it's God doing something that's supernatural that brings glory to himself. It's a wonder. It's, whoa, what is that? God's bringing glory to himself because he's supernatural. Are you guys following me with this idea? Okay, I want you to understand miracles, signs and wonders, okay? But here's the cool thing. Miracles aren't just limited to healings. Like I shared a couple cool stories, right? But verse five says that God supplies the spirit and works miracles by hearing with faith, not by works of the law. So receiving the Holy Spirit and the miraculous, right, are a result of hearing the gospel that we've been talking about with faith, okay? Track with me for a second. We know from Ephesians chapter, chapter two that faith is a gift. Okay, I'm gonna read you Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. You've heard this before, I'm sure. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's massive. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, in the same way miracles are given from God miraculously, right? So it is when God supplies his spirit. Here's why this matters. Every single time someone hears the gospel and responds in faith, hears the message of God's love, the message of Jesus going to the cross, living the perfect life for them, dying the death they deserve, crediting his righteousness, every time someone hears the gospel um, and responds in faith and trusting that it's true, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's God's miraculous intervention in their life. And it's not just like limited to the one-time deal, the first act of conversion, right? Like, oh, I'm gonna follow Jesus now. It's not just a one-time thing. Hearing with faith is not only the way to start the Christian life, it's also the way that we continue in it day by day by day. So every time you hear the message of the gospel, and your response is to trust in it. Go, this is true. I believe this. Every time you hear the gospel and your response is to trust in it, the result, that is a result of the Holy Spirit's miraculous intervention in your life. So hear me say this. I think God is miraculously intervening in our lives way more than we give him credit for. Because we're prideful. You're like me and you go, man, I'm just brilliant. Like I have these incredible thoughts. I just understand scripture more than most people. It's crazy. But the scriptures are telling us that's a miraculous intervention from the creator of all things coming into your life. It's a miracle on par with that little boy getting healed. It's amazing. And again, what's a miracle? It's a sign pointing to God and who is God. What's the truth about God? We've talked about this for weeks. God is a loving father who when he looks at you, because if if your trust is in Jesus, remember we're talking about if, if you're responding to the gospel in faith, you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Hear me say that again. You're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Every time you believe the gospel, it's God miraculously intervening in your heart. It's a beautiful, incredible thing. It's a sign pointing to him. It's God loving you personally. And here's what I need you to understand too. It's not just the, it's not like day one of following Jesus. For the disciple of Jesus, for the follower of Jesus, hearing the gospel and responding by trusting in it is an everyday thing. So what does that imply? Every day we need to hear the gospel from each other. We need to rehearse it in our own brains and we need to hear it from each other. And it doesn't stop there, responding in faith. Okay, I'll move on. The truth is God is miraculously at work. Now, remember the story I told you about David, the custodian, right? Now, honestly, when I, when I consider this reality that we're seeing from the scriptures, I don't know what's, what the more amazing miracle was. God healing David of his hernia? Or, or now that he's like a chosen adopted son of God, his, secure, his, his eternity is secure. His heart and mind has been enlightened to the truth of the gospel, They're both miraculous events, but I honestly, I'd rather have this man spending eternity with Jesus. No sin, no death, no brokenness. It's incredible. 
They're both amazing, miraculous acts of God. Okay, so Paul, he's reinforcing the same position he's been defending for two chapters now. You guys are probably tired of hearing this, but basically he's saying what makes a Christian is not works. It's by the miraculous intervention of God. It's by grace alone, okay? Second thing, the role of biology. Okay, Paul's gonna go into how the Jewish, the Jewish race, like how the Jewish race factors into this whole equation, the role of biology. Look at verse uh, six. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, really quick, notice it says believed God. It does not say believed in God. Are you tracking with me? Okay, verse seven. Excuse me. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Okay, I need water. Will you hook me up? Um, I need to summarize something really quickly. For this to make sense, thank you, my love. For this to make sense, we have to understand the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, the Abrahamic covenant. You have God comes to Abraham, okay, and he makes this outlandish promise, this spectacular promise to Abraham. He says, through your descendants, I'm gonna bless all nations, okay? He goes, I will be your God, you will be my people, Now, this is nuts. This is crazy because Abraham was 100 years old at the time that God delivers this promise. His wife, Sarah, is 90, okay? So he basically says, hey, like through your descendants, through your kids, I'm gonna bless all nations. When was the last time you saw a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman conceive, let alone give birth? Like, you probably haven't seen it, okay? So you can understand Abraham's like, whoa. But Abraham believed God. He believed his promise. And what does God do? God miraculously provides a son. That's Isaac, okay? So you have Abraham, who has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, okay? So you can, you can picture the family tree happening here, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons, they are the patriarchs of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Are you guys seeing the family tree in your mind? okay. those are the Jews, the sons of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. The sons of Abraham, those are the Jews. So Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, okay? Paul is saying something pretty crazy. He's saying that the spiritual sons of Abraham, the true people of God, again, God chose the Israelites, right? Those are his chosen people to reflect who he is to the world around him. Paul is saying that the spiritual sons of Abraham, the true people of God, they're not determined by biology. The family tree. He's saying it's not a racial thing. He's saying having Jewish parents doesn't make you a son of Abraham. That would have ticked a lot of Jews off, okay? He says what makes a son of Abraham is what? Look at the verse. Verse seven. Yes, faith. What makes a son of Abraham is faith. Honestly, I've met, it kills me, I've met so many people who are believing the same false message that the Galatians were believing, that biology or family background somehow reconciles you to God. And it usually looks like this. Like someone, I'll meet someone and inevitably they're like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor, I'm a church planner. And then instantly they're like, oh crap, I just said like three cuss words and I feel terrible. I'm like, it's fine. Like we can, you can, I wanna know who you are. It's totally cool. <clears throat> and what'll happen is they'll go, oh yeah, cool. Like I'm a Christian too. That's great. I'm like, great, man. Like what, is that, what does that mean for you? I mean, it's different things for different people, but like what does it mean for you to be a Christian? So, oh, well, my mom and dad are Christians. Or my grandparents were Christians. Or my uncle's a pastor. Or, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. Like, I went to Christian school. They're believing this false, opposing message, this lie that family background or biology is somehow what reconciles you to God. It's not family background or biology that reconciles you to God. It's believing. Remember, it says Abraham believed God. Didn't say he believed in God. It said he believed him What does that language tell us? There's relationship. He's getting information from God, okay? He believed God. It doesn't say believe in God. It's not about acknowledging truth. 
We've talked about this. It's not about acknowledging truth. It's about trust. It's about hearing and responding with faith. Paul's saying it's not a biological thing. The people of God are not because of a a family tree. You know what that does to me? I have children. That makes me go, oh my goodness, I don't need to just put, like, don't get me wrong, I think the church is the, I've reordered my entire life around planting churches. I think the church is the most important thing, like, legitimately, it's the hope of the world, okay? <clears throat> because the spirit of God is in the church, and the spirit of God is on a mission of redeeming all things. So I love the church. Nobody loves the church more than me. Hear me say that. But, like, church and Christian schools and all these environments that are not bad, they're good. Sometimes they can start to develop in you a pride that removes you from the relationship that is ne- it's necessary for you to have faith, to believe God, not just to acknowledge he exists. Guys, what I want for my girls, what I want for all of our kids is that they would believe God. That, that means that they, they know him. If they're gonna hear information, they not just know, know things about him, but that they would trust him, they would know him, they would know how to hear his voice. They would know the sorts of things that he says and the sorts of things that he doesn't say in a culture that's full of of communicating lies to them and deceiving them. So I feel like there's like weight for us. I know there's a lot of parents in the room, but like I want my kids to not just believe in God. That's important, that's cool. I want them to believe him. I want them to actually put their trust in him. You're tracking with me, that's why it's a big deal. Okay, last thing, number three, the unchanging gospel. Look back at verse uh, eight. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This is crazy. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Guys, Paul is saying that the gospel goes all the way back to Abraham. Are you tracking with me? He's saying it goes all the way back then. What saved Abraham is the same thing that saves any Christian. What is that? Faith. Trusting God. Okay, so like, let me paint a picture for you here the best I can. Hopefully this makes sense. Okay, you have Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. The Savior of the world, okay? We do what? We put our trust in God that God in the flesh accomplished something for us. Okay, that's past for us, right? We're putting our faith in what God has done, correct? Abraham trusts in God, knowing God. Everybody prior to Jesus, for that matter, trusting God was putting their trust in God that he would do something, and what is that? What they can't do for themselves because they're sinners. Reconcile them to God based on God's performance. Are you tracking with me? So every person, uh, every, every, every redeemed soul, post-Jesus, pre-Jesus, what saves them, what reconciles them to God is the exact same thing. Are you tracking with me? And what is that? Trusting in God, not in what I do. You feeling me? Nod your head big, loud. This is a big, this is a big deal. If you get this, this is massive, okay? <clears throat> we can talk about it later if you're having trouble. The message of the gospel has been the same from the beginning. It's unchanging. Because the message of the gospel is just the message about who God is and what he's done. God's unchanging. He hasn't changed. His character, his integrity, his kindness, his love, his faithfulness, his goodness has not changed from the beginning through Jesus and even to today. But here's the thing. The opposing messages, the opposing messages, they're not new either. I'll close with this. You guys can come on up. The opposing messages have been around since the beginning as well. Go ahead and flip to Genesis chapter three quickly. It's in the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter three. I'm gonna read this starting in verse one. Now the serpent, that's Satan, the enemy, the devil. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, that's Eve, did God actually say 
you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Like, notice, that's a flat-out lie. Okay, verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. This is Satan speaking. This is the serpent. Your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, to her, to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay. So Satan tempts Adam and Eve to believe an opposing message. And that opposing message is that God is not trustworthy. And they believe it. And they disobey. And sin enters the world. You guys are familiar with this story. Sin enters the world, causes division between Adam and Eve, brokenness, destruction. It fractures the relationship between them and God. Like, quite literally, all hell breaks loose. Sin and death causing all sorts of destruction and pain. These opposing messages, like the one that Satan was giving and feeding Adam and Eve, they're not new. So we fast forward to Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. Fast forward to Jesus. And in Luke chapter four, just before Jesus um, goes to begin his public ministry, right? He goes out to the wilderness and he's fasting for 40 days. So he's in an uncomfortable environment, in an uncomfortable state, Imagine not eating for 40 days. That would make me uncomfortable. And Satan comes to him. Just like he came to Adam and Eve. And I feel like some, like he's coming to you in this season of, I feel like there's people, like some of us in the room, like he's been coming to you in this season of your life. Satan comes to Jesus just like Adam and Eve. And he tempts Jesus with more opposing messages. And basically they all mean the same thing. God is not trustworthy. Satan wants Jesus to believe the opposing message. It's like Winston Churchill. The best move is just to surrender to the enemy. Believe the opposing message. It's the best move. But do you guys, are you guys familiar with the story? Do you remember what Jesus' response was, what he did? He quotes scripture. He combats the opposing messages that are coming his way. They're flying at him. Okay? He's experienced the same opposing messages that you have. He's experienced the temptation to believe those opposing messages just like you and I have. And what does he do? He combats them. Actively, he fights against them. He he combats those opposing messages with the truth of God's word. He believes and he declares the true message. Dude, there is at, there's gold, beauty and gold in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. Let me read this to you. It's amazing. For as in Adam, we all know who Adam is, for as in Adam, all die. We talked about Abraham's family tree. We're all descendants from Adam. Every human being who's ever lived and Adam's believing the opposing message that caused sin to come in and fracture and destroy everything has an effect on you and I. We've inherited this reality. We've inherited the result of sin and death and brokenness and selfishness. And what's the result? For as in Adam, the descendants of Adam, because of Adam, we all die. But here's the beauty, friends. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
The rest of this chapter, chapter 15, it goes on to describe Adam as man's first representative. The first Adam. And Jesus as the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. This is personal to me because where I failed, Jesus has succeeded. Where Pokey has failed, Jesus has succeeded. Where Matt has failed, Jesus has succeeded. And the same is true for each of us. The opposing messages, friends, they're gonna keep coming at you. They've been going on from the beginning and they're not gonna stop. The question is, what's your response to the messages that you hear? Remember, it's not, it's not what you believe in that counts. It's who you believe. Believing the, eye, the lies of the enemy, they will bewitch you, as Paul says. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The ESV, it translates it that way. It says, who has bewitched you? The CSB translation says, who has cast a spell on you? Friends, this is why we cannot move on from the gospel. When the church moves on from the gospel, it becomes something that Jesus never intended for it to be. It becomes a show. It becomes a building that eventually is gonna turn into a museum. It loses its power. It loses the spirit of God testifying to the goodness and the glory and the grace and the mercy of God. The gospel is our most important things, guys. It's the most important thing. It's power. It's the power to expose the deceptive messages of the enemy that cause destruction in your life. My friend, what opposing messages are you tempted to believe in this season of your life? Paul's message to the Galatians, his message to all Christians, is a similar message that Winston Churchill had, to never surrender, to fight back with the truth of the gospel. The message of the gospel is, friend, you're, you're incredibly sinful, yet you are deeply loved, deeply valued. So loved, in fact, Jesus would trade places with you. You get his righteousness, he gets the wrath. You get the pardon, he gets the pain. The gospel, guys, the gospel is proof that God loves you and that you can trust him. Even when you don't understand, even when the circumstances are crazy, you can trust them no matter what. That's the good news of the gospel. The Galatians, they moved on from this. They moved on from the gospel. They trusted in a different message, an opposing message. They were deceived by the enemy. It doesn't always look like a serpent. Sometimes it looks like people that we love because we're broken. We're all capable of hurting each other. But friends, we have the gospel. Because of the gospel, we can know the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. And it's that truth that protects us from being bewitched. Hearing the gospel and responding with faith, guys, you need to know this. It's not a one-time thing. It's every day of your life. That's what following Jesus is, repentance and faith. It's an everyday thing. How we respond to the messages we hear is a massive deal. So my prayer for us as this church is forming, for each one of you, I love this season because I know you guys. Most of you, I know you, I'm getting to know you really well. And my prayer for each of us is that we would be men and women who are consistently combating these opposing messages. They're coming at you from all angles. Every single angle, TV, social media, conversations, relationships, everything. But that when we hear these opposing messages, we'd combat them with the truth of the gospel. Not just for ourselves, but for each other. When we recognize that somebody in our family is believing an opposing message, that we wouldn't sit idly back and go, oh, they'll figure it out. They're filled with the Spirit. They'll be fine. That we would combat and fight on their behalf. 
we'd respond in faith that just like Abraham, we would believe God and not just simply believe in him. And I'm convinced we're gonna experience miraculous event, miraculous intervention after miraculous intervention in our lives until Jesus comes and restores all things. Let me pray for us, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for your miraculous intervention in our life. It really is like grace alone. It's, we can't even figure out the formula. We, it's, not, it's not possible. And that develops a humility of like, whoa, I can't do this. But it also develops like a grateful heart in me, Lord, because you love me that much. You don't give up. Father, my prayer for each one of us in the room is that we would experience your miraculous intervention by you enlightening our heart to the truth of the gospel and that we would respond to it by trusting it, not the opposing messages. Culture wants to deceive us that our body image is probably our most important asset. How much money we have or we don't have Jesus, you're different. Your kingdom is radically different than that. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. You're a king who didn't come to be served but to serve and lay down your life as a ransom for many. We want to be men and women who follow in your footsteps, who don't just, who don't just, oh God, forgive me, who don't just study things about you. Yeah, we want to know more about you, but we want it to inform our entire lives and we want it to inform the entire, like the lives of our children, biological and spiritual. So God, I love you. Spirit, fill us, shape us. I know what you're doing. I can see and feel it and sense it. And in this moment, I just want to praise you. So I pray, Lord, in this moment for each of us that you would receive the due praise that you deserve for your goodness and intervening miraculously in our lives. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your holy and beautiful name. Amen.